Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us the paradox of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Schrodinger's cat is a challenge to quantum theory. Now, I'm not even going to pretend to understand quantum theory, and I'll be honest, uh, even Schrodinger's cat is a little strange to me. But Schrodinger imagined a cat in a box, but also in the box was a radioactive atom inside a vial of poison. Now, the atom may or may not decay at any given time. I mean, it eventually will, but you don't know exactly when. Thus, the vial of poison may or may not be broken at any given moment. And finally, thus, the cat may or may not be alive at any given moment because if the radioactive atom decayed, then it broke the vial of poison and the cat would have been poisoned. But if it hasn't decayed, then it hasn't broken and the cat's alive. The only way to see if the cat is alive, of course, is to open the box. It is as impossible to prove or disprove God exists just as it is impossible to prove that heaven or hell exists. Unless you come face to face with God or you step out of this life into either heaven or hell, and then they are realities that you cannot disprove. So what's your concept of God? If you had to draw him, what would he look like? If you had to describe him, how would you do it? If you had to choose someone to play him in a movie, who would you prove? I mean, who would you choose? In the 50s, God was simply a deep, thunderous voice spoken from a cloud. You never got to see him. In the 60s, God was a really, really old, and, and he had white hair and a beard, still the deep, thunderous voice. In the 70s and 80s, the uh, image of God was everything from a glowing rock to a distorted alien to George Burns walking around with a cane, smoking a cigar. Hollywood's choices to play God are usually scandalous. Morgan Freeman in Bruce Almighty, Alanis Morissette in Dogma, Whoopi Goldberg in A Little Bit of Heaven, Octavia Spencer in The Shack, and Steve Buscemi in Miracle Workers. The Bible says God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at once. So is God so powerful that he can make a rock that even he can't lift? Yeah, that's a question not believers like to use in order to prove that there can't be a God. Because if God is all-powerful, then he should be able to do anything. But if he makes a rock that even he can't lift, then he's not God. But if he can't make a rock that he can't lift, then he's not God. It, yeah, somehow that makes them feel good about themselves. Because we are not only forgetful people, but simple people when it comes to theology and God talk, we, we tend to struggle with the holy and the mysterious. They are unexplainable, at least to us humans. When I was in Africa, I learned that an ostrich's brain is smaller than its eyeball. Now, since at least in theory, and again, I can't prove it, my brain is larger than my eyeball, I'm at least smarter than an ostrich. I also learned that ostriches taste good, but that's a whole nother sermon. So how big is God's brain? And assuming that it's bigger than ours, and that he has actually lived from all eternity, thus has a tremendous amount of experience, do you see the problem with him trying to explain eternal holy things to us who are neither eternal nor holy? I'm not sure how we think God should speak to us, the kind of words he should use, the semantics and, and grammatical structure. What language should he use? Will he speak like a seminary professor or like our third grade Sunday school teacher? Or maybe like our crazy aunt that used to run around quoting Bible verses all the time? Will his voice be loud? Will it be angry? Will he talk really fast? Will it be quiet? 
Is he really going to talk like Morgan Freeman or James Earl Jones? Turns out when God shows up to talk to his people, he tells stories. That's what we learn in the Gospels. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, it says Jesus did not speak to them, the crowds, without a parable. Privately, however, he would explain everything to his own disciples. Jesus sat down in the market, at dinner, in church, sat down on a hillside, even went out on a little boat, and invited everyone to sit down and listen to a story. When Jesus was hanging out with farmers, do you know what he talked about? Seeds, wheat, crops. When he was hanging out with fishermen, he he talked about fish and waves and boats. When he was with the ladies' group, he talked about yeast and bread. And then there were stories about birds and trees and treasure and lost children and sheep and religious fanatics. And each story unwrapped a little bit of the mystery of the kingdom of heaven so that even the most simple could understand it if they had ears to hear. In Matthew's Gospel, 13th chapter, Jesus says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. But but you need to know that when he said that, he was actually quoting Asaph from Psalm 78. And Asaph, as a prophet, was actually quoting God. And Jesus is God, so I think you see how this is a little bit of circular logic. But both Asaph and Jesus said, kept secret from the foundation of the world. And, And we have to understand that God wasn't the one that was keeping it a secret. No, we were. The church, the government, the Bible study groups, the pastors, the people, all of them were hiding things that they didn't think others needed to hear. But after a while, everyone forgot them because they hadn't been spoken for so long. St. John in his gospel says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose, not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. So why isn't there a library the size of the world with everything, and I mean absolute everything Jesus ever did or said? Uh, It's because we tend to make things a lot more complicated than we need to. I mean, look, with just 66 books, how much trouble we get into. Imagine if we had a library the size of the world. And so Jesus came to remind us of the things that we actually need to pay attention to, the things we need to remember, the things we need to know. The stories he told were the same story. In other words, he simply retold the same story over and over again, and it's always about God's love. He just told it in a little different way to different people because of the audience he was speaking to and how, well, how best that they would understand. When Jesus says, let the little children come unto me, we really need to pay attention to that. You see, children were left out of adult conversations. They were not only not to be heard, but they also were not to be seen in that culture. You were mitzvahed when you were 12 or 13, but you weren't a full member of the church until you were 30. Until that time, you had limited abilities. Jesus is willing to share the secrets of God's kingdom with those who were often excluded from the church just because they were children or blind or deaf or paralyzed or filled with demons. I mean, there's a message in that for the church today. You can imagine the leaders of the church being horrified when Jesus said, You know, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, mm -hmm, but revealed them to little children. See, the leaders thought they were protecting the truths of God by keeping them away from the riffraff, when it was the riffraff that desperately needed to hear the truth of God. Jesus came as the Savior for every person ever born. And by the way, he even came to be the Savior of those who never made it out of the womb into the world. 
But it was only those who had listening ears and open eyes, those who were hungry for righteousness and thirsty for God. It was for the meek and the mild, the lost and the broken. Those were the ones who listened to him. They were the ones who smelled like fish, because they were fishermen, or had dirt under their fingernails, because they were farmers, or who had a son who ran away and became a prodigal, or who had amassed a lot of money but still felt like there was just something missing in Jesus told them all stories. When St. John quotes Isaiah, who was quoting God, when he said, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. If you ever saw the best Christmas pageant ever, you remember when Gladys Herdman took advantage of, of her having the only speaking role, and she changed the Bible a little bit, and she started yelling instead of unto us, she said, unto you a child is born. And she ran around, and she yelled it loud enough and pointed her finger enough that everybody understood that it was unto you. See, Jesus was born for us. That's exactly what John and Isaiah and God want us to hear. And St. Paul echoes it in the eighth chapter of his letter to the Romans where he said, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? The kingdom of God knows no geographic boundaries or political parties. It doesn't have an official language or culture, unless, of course, you count prayer. It comes not about through power and might, but through acts of love and joy and peace. We are not sent to war, but on missions of mercy. And the kingdom arrived not with a trumpet sound, but with a baby's cry. It continues not with the conquering of enemies, with swords and bombs, but forgiveness and grace. We see the one we follow not riding on the back of a war horse, but on the back of a donkey. And the kingdom's greatest moment comes on a cross outside Jerusalem when the King of kings and the Lord of lords dies a grotesque and bloody death while the crowds gather around him and spit on him and make fun of him and then dare him to prove he's the Messiah by condemning the entire history of humanity to hell. Because they said, if you come off the cross... We'll believe in you. But if he comes off the cross, of course, none of us are saved. So back to Schrodinger's cat for a moment. The disciples had watched Jesus die. They didn't put his body in a box. They put it in a tomb. All that hope, all that promise. Was it alive or was it dead? Was he alive or was he dead? And the only way to know was to open the tomb now, three days after the crucifixion, when it appeared darkness had won, and, uh, well, they went on to say one final aloha to the one that had given them hope. And the one that they had hoped, by the way, that would restore the kingdom, who would restore life, who would restore purpose. But when they got to the grave, it was empty. And then there was an angel, and he said, you know, he's not here. He's risen just as he said. And later that day, Jesus walked through, now, is either a door or a wall, and held out his hands and showed where they pierced him and nailed him to the cross. And he said, peace be to you. And there were no more doubts or theories. You see, Jesus' resurrection was now a reality that they couldn't disprove. And here's where the power, but also the mystery, the parables come together. You see, as the Marys and disciples stood at the empty tomb listening to the angels' words, it was no different than the crowds who were listening to Jesus tell his stories. If you had to have someone explain what it meant, you weren't ready for the truth. If you have to have somebody explain a joke or, or a parable or, or an empty tomb to you, then it just means that they aren't ready for what God is doing. Now, it doesn't mean there's no hope for them. It just means that they need someone to come alongside them to help them understand it. See, the end of the parable, like the empty tomb, are not the end. They're just the beginning. 
when Jesus ended the parable, the way you showed him you got the point was to actually go out and start living, or at least trying to live under grace and mercy, what you learned from the parable. You don't stand at the empty tomb staring at it. You turn around and start running to embrace the life and the love and the forgiveness that, that God has given to you. One of the mysteries of the kingdom of God is the now but not yet. The, the disciples were always asking Jesus, if, you know, are you going to restore the kingdom of God now? And most of the time Jesus answered, the kingdom is already here. And that really confused the disciples because when they looked around, everything was the same as it was yesterday and last week and last year, which, by the way, by their definition is not the kingdom that they were wanting. The kingdom to most of us is when tears are wiped from every eye, when all the swords are beaten into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks, when justice cascades like rivers down mountains and righteousness flows like a never-ending stream. When people from every tribe and tongue and nation are living together and, and literally eating together in peace. And the kingdom is especially here when there is no more death. When I read the news, that is not the world that I live in. No, we live in one of wars and rumors of wars, plagues, droughts, floods, volcanoes, fires, slavery, abuse. Not exactly kingdom of God stuff, is it? What we're missing is we can't see the world or history the way that God sees it. See, our timeline, seconds, minutes, months, years, absolute worst possible way to view life and history. We are often trapped in the futility of our past or, or afraid of our future or just flat out tired of our present. And when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is here and now, it wasn't some kind of hocus pocus or sleight of hand or politicians promise that he quickly hopes you forget everything he said because he has no intention of fulfilling it. No, the kingdom of God exists right now in all its perfection and holiness. When I stand over the grave of a believer, there's no doubt they're dead. I was often at the hospital and I know the pulse is gone. The brain activity has ceased. They are dead. Yet Jesus says they are also alive. Not will be alive, but are alive in the present. They don't have to wait until the end of time. They're with Jesus right now. If they aren't, then everything we are doing and everything we are saying and everything we are believing is a lie. And we're simply wasting our time and our life and our resources and everything else. But if they are alive with Jesus right now, then it also means that heaven is real and forgiveness is real and grace is real and God is real and Jesus is real and the angels are real and we can go on and on and on. See, we may not be experiencing the fullness of it right now, but it's real and it's waiting for us. Now, we're still going to struggle to understand, struggle to grasp what the parables mean, let alone how to live them out. Struggle to grasp what we should do as we leave the tomb and, and pass by the cross. But one thing we do know, we now know something that we didn't know before. And this knowing isn't just a fact we memorized and can regurgitate when somebody asks us. No, this knowing is deeper because it goes all the way to the soul. We may not be able to prove God exists to anyone else, but we know He exists. And we know that heaven is real and forgiveness and grace and mercy and peace. See, the God of the universe, the, the one who knows the names of all the stars, who created ostriches and blue whales, who actually knows if the light in the frigidator stays on even when the door is closed, he calls us to himself and he says he has a story that he wants to tell us. 
let those who have ears hear, he says. And we know it's more than just having ears because almost everyone has ears. What we really need is a believing heart and eyes that can see beyond the moment. We need the story to take us where more than anything we want and need to be, where death is vanquished, pain is healed, sin is forgiven, guilt is washed away, and where love covers over everything, including us. We look at the box and know the cat is alive even though we haven't opened it yet. We look at the grave and know that even though someday we are going to be buried there, yet we shall also still be alive. For all this to happen, God has to be more than we can imagine or draw or describe or sing or even paint. God has to be God. Not our description, not our idea, but the reality that is God in all of his glory and all of his love. As we listen to him, we are drawn into the story in such a way that we no longer need it explained. For it has become our story, which it always was. We, we just didn't know. We're no longer just pretending or playing dress-up. God has enabled us to see beyond ourselves, beyond this world, to a reality that exists in the here and now, and which one day we will call home forever and ever. And maybe we can't prove God to anyone else. We can't open the box and let them see the mysteries but you know, as the world sees us live, not as perfect people, but forgiven people, and there's a huge amount. When people see us live by grace, our prayer will be that God becomes as real for them as he is for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.